You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Michael Osterholm. Mike, welcome, and thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you to both of you. Thanks for having me. Michael is the director, founder and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota, where he also is professor in the School of Public Health, uh, comes from an environmental sciences background, uh, came into this. He's also the author of Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Germs, a 2017 volume, Post-Ebola, which was a bestseller here in the country. And first of all, Michael, congratulations on being named just recently a member of President-elect Biden's COVID-19 Advisory Task Force. Congratulations. It's terrific to see you among that group. And it was it's a very impressive group. And I think a lot of people have drawn a lot of encouragement by seeing that quality and diversity of people come forward. Celine Grounder did an interview in The New Yorker today that was great. I mean, you're seeing the proliferation and it's just bringing across all the right attitudes about how we should be approaching this crisis right now. So I want to open with a question, a broad question on we're in the middle of a runaway crisis. How do you characterize what's unfolding right now in the surge? You know, many states seem to be approaching a breaking point in their capacity of their health systems. There's a lot of change unfolding among Republican governors and Democratic governors across this country and mayors and the like. What does this all foretell? Where are we right now in your view? How do you characterize our situation? Well, let me start by adding some perspective to to that question in the sense of saying today is a incredibly positive day from the standpoint of the news that we've had over the past two weeks about the efficacy and safety of two different vaccines that we know will be forthcoming. I think we can't uh, for a moment not feel very encouraged by that and what it means. However, the challenge is that that's going to be months off yet. And in the period between now and sometime first and second quarter of next year, we are going to be going through the single most dangerous public health moment since 1918. The activity virus-wise that we're seeing right now is in this exponential growth phase, as we've seen in other areas of the world, what can happen. And so to have gone from 26,000 cases a day reported at Labor Day to now 160 to 180,000 cases a day is just a, in a sense, a stepping stone to even a higher number. A combination of pandemic fatigue, pandemic anger, and indoor air has made for the absolute perfect combination of what is going to continue to fuel this virus transmission. So I think as, as you laid out the question, Stephen, your, your conclusion in a sense about the healthcare system is exactly right. We're working very closely with healthcare systems around the country. They are virtually on the edge of breaking. We've never broken our healthcare system before in modern history. Give us an illustration. What would breaking mean? First of all, we have a combination of what I call the trifecta of shortages that are about to hit us. The first one is just the employees that we need, the staff, the trained medical experts in each and every hospital. You know, we have watched one of the most untold stories and yet 
incredible stories of this pandemic with the decrease in the case fatality rate of people in the ICUs from April to now. And it's all been basically just understanding how to treat these patients, whether it be ventilation, et cetera. It's not been blockbuster drugs at all. And it's because of the expertise of these critical care medicine teams, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, uh, lab people. I mean, the ICUs are, are unique. And when they overflow, it doesn't mean that you just get more beds and more ICU staff. They don't exist, the ICU staff. And so you have a step down in care. And even though you still have wonderfully qualified doctors and nurses, you have real challenges. Even within the ICUs, they're so short-staffed right now. Uh, a good example of that is a ICU charge nurse I was just talking to yesterday. In their unit, where she is the charge nurse, these patients are so severely ill, these COVID patients, that they assign one ICU nurse per patient. She right now has to handle five patients with herself, two general float nurses, and a student nurse. That's how short-staffed they are. Today, the Mayo Clinic is reporting out over 900 healthcare workers in the Mayo Clinic system are out with COVID. They themselves, from community-acquired cases and some acquired in the work setting, that's happening in healthcare facilities around the world, and particularly right here in this country. And so the challenge we have is, first of all, we're going to not have the people who we would otherwise want and expect to be there for that. The second challenge, the second trifecta of the shortages is we're just going to run into a wall in terms of PPE. Personal protective equipment is going to become harder and harder to get a hold of. And that's for two reasons. One is with this surge, we never really caught up in stockpiling much of the equipment that we're going to need for this large surge right now. So we've got to deal with healthcare systems that are going to be quite short. On top of that, we actually have a situation with Europe where we're seeing now, unlike in July when we had our big peak, Europe had very little activity going on. Right now, they need their PPE also. And much of it's coming from few and single sources. So this poses a real challenge. And then finally, I'd just say the last, the, the trifecta, and then uh, I, you know, there is the fact that we're just going to have drug shortages. Our group has been working on uh, just standard medical treatment drug shortages for some time. We've identified 40 critical drugs that you need right now to treat patients in ICUs, things like antibiotics for secondary, bac secondary bacterial infections, propofol for just the ability to intubate somebody. Of those 40 drugs, 29 right now are in shortage status, and that number is growing. And the extent to which they're short is growing. So as the surge continues in this country, we have even more need for them. And remember, Europe, again, has the same need. So when you add those three together, along with the pandemic fatigue, pandemic anger, and indoor air, we have got a perfect storm that uh, I don't think anyone could ever fully have appreciated or imagined before this particular moment. I want to invite my good friend and colleague, Andrew Schwartz, to jump in. Steve, thanks so much. And Mike, thank you for being here. Mike, you, you said something I, I just have to jump in and ask you about. You said we're entering the most dangerous period of any kind of pandemic since the Spanish flu of 1918, the pandemic of 1918. Steve and I had John Barry on our podcast earlier this year talking about the pandemic of 1918. It's incredibly scary. Are we really at that stage where 
we should be that frightened? Well, I, I don't know if the word's frightened, but at least we have, from a situational awareness standpoint, have to know where in the hell we're at. You know, John is a dear, dear friend, and he, I, he and I commiserate a lot. And, you know, one of the things that we've come to a conclusion together on is that if you go back to 1918, the average length of time that communities were really hit hard by virus activity was six to 10 weeks. That was it. And then it came through the community and you came out the other side. Well, you know, during that time, it was horrible. But in a sense, you could keep up the fight for that period of time and not become fatigued, not feel a state of denial or wonder, is there ever going to be an end to it? And I think that one of the challenges we have with this pandemic, imagine if all of this had just occurred in March and April. We'd have been in a lot better shape in terms of people's resolve, people's willingness to take on the battle. Now we're in the 11th month almost, and people are really tired. And guess what? This is the worst part. You know, people have been critical of me because I've tended to call this like I call a baseball game, balls and strikes, but I also talk about innings. And I've been in the bottom of the third, top of the fourth for some time, anticipating what's happening right now would happen. I actually said this in early August. I said it didn't wouldn't surprise me if we got to 200,000 cases a day. And you people looked at me like, you know, I came from Mars. And now here we really are. And so I think the challenge we have right now is how do we help a very fatigued, a, a very stretched group get forward? You know, it's hard for me to talk to people in the ICUs. Here in Minnesota, let me just tell you today, you know, I've been working closely with the people here in our intensive care units. Over a thousand doctors today just signed a petition in Minnesota here to our governor. Please shut all these things down. You have to understand what's going on inside of our ICUs, what's going on inside of our hospitals. They're begging for help. I can't imagine that have happened before now. It's just one of those things that you wouldn't think of doctors and nurses organized as such, but they are desperate. You know, I just got done doing a talk this morning for a large healthcare system in the Western United States. And to hear the voices of these people describing where they're at, many of these people feel broken. They, you know, they can't do it again one more time to hold the iPad up to somebody's face so that a family could watch their mom or dad or grandpa or grandma died. And they're doing that multiple times a day. I had one very, very well-known intensive care physician say to me, you know, I used to think I had a bad day if I had two or three patients die on my watch. And now I can have that happen in one hour. And so I think that that is the kind of thing I don't think the country's realizing yet. And so I think, and I've said this, and maybe not in very popular ways, I think this country will start to respond when people are dying, sitting in chairs and waiting rooms and emergency rooms for 10 hours to get a bed, and they can't find one, and then they die. Mike, I think we're on the, what you're describing is we're on the edge of something far bigger and more profound than what anybody anticipated. And what we're seeing, I think, is a radical and quick-moving shift of thinking. We're seeing it in governors, those who would not embrace masks are now starting to embrace masks which may be an opening of a kind in terms of a rethink and depoliticizing mass. But we're also seeing a shift towards a new form of national thinking. You yourself have suggested this may require a shutdown. This may require a new order of, of, of rethinking what's required. And 
President-elect Biden himself is talking in his own way and on the website, Build Back Better and the like, about a new approach on a national level. That there's a, there has to be a return to thinking in national terms and thinking in long term and what the courageous actions by governors and mayors and providers and citizens is essential, but it's not enough. Tell us a bit as in your role, what does that mean for us to go back to we need to recharge a national approach? Right. I, I think the issue here is, is that we don't have national leadership on this issue. And let's just I'm, I'm just calling balls and strikes here. This is not a partisan statement. I've had five different governors call me in the past few days asking for advice on what should they do. And they're lost. And, they're, and, and you know, I had one governor say, you know, it's a real problem for me when I got four states surrounding me and I make declarations what we're going to do to try to shut down transmission. But then the other four states have different standards. And particularly when they're not as extensive as mine, I get heavily criticized. And what do I do? I think the challenge is, and, you know, I even saw it this past week where, you know, I referred to an op-ed piece that I had in the New York Times with Neil Kashkari, the president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank, about what we needed to do to crush the virus. But also the key piece I was talking about was the economic side. People are really hurting out here, not just from the virus, but from economic desperation. So when we close down bars and restaurants, which I would say is very important to do if we're going to try to keep our schools open, but at the same time, we've got to understand the impact that has. You're the waitress that no longer has a job, but you're a single mom. You're trying to feed them. You're trying to keep a roof over their head. What do you do? You're a, a business owner and your business, small business is hanging on by a thread. You want to do the right thing, but you need help. You're a state government or a city government where you're going to have to lay off all kinds of firemen or police right now. We have a desperate need for financial aid out here to just make our response work. That's what will help us. But you know what? As soon as you raised it, and, and you, you asked, Steve, about the issue of this terminology, the term lockdown is a horrible term. I wish I could get out of the vocabulary of everyone. You know, if you ask 50 people what a lockdown is, you'll get 75 different answers. And no one knows. Look at all the governors are doing right now. You know, you, you had one eastern state government just said he may lock down his state for two weeks. But nobody's having that discussion nationally. And when I even mentioned the word, a week and a half ago, you, you saw all the people coming out, pouncing on that. And I'm sitting here saying, I'm not calling for a lockdown, as you say. I'm calling for a discussion of how do we do this nationally, just to your point. And so I, you know, I continue to support that. That's my own personal opinion. It's not that, uh, you know, I'm not at all speaking for the Biden transition team. But I can tell you, we're going to get to the point where we're going to need this national response because it's going to get that bad. Look at Europe. No country over there has started to turn it around. It's getting worse where they haven't had extensive issues of slowing down the, their economy, distancing. And I think the one thing that people keep coming back on, and I, I surely, I mean, I've had more death threats in the last week than I've had in the last six months. And it's all been because of this issue around the economy. You know, nobody right now is monitoring how many people fly in airplanes and tell them you can't fly. Nobody is shutting down hotels and saying you can't do it. But what's happening? Nobody's going. And that's if you don't fix COVID, you don't fix the economy. 
And I think that's what people have to begin to understand. They're not mutually exclusive. I mean, I, I found, for example, after the, with the election, all the polling that was done post-voting, they kept saying, did you vote for the economy or did you vote for COVID? I thought that is a really stupid question. They're both together. And so I think that's what you're getting from me right now. Well, I think it's important that that logic get across. But I also think President Biden, President-elect Biden, is going to have a, a tough road in front of him in making the case to such a divided country around the need for a national approach. And so it's going to require taking the temperature down. It's going to be required. You know, we're in a, a crisis may create new openings, but it's I think it's a matter of tone and composure and explanation and engagement that has not happened at a national level. And I wanted to ask you. And like Mike said, Steve, I mean, it, the language is really important. I mean, lockdown is is anathema to Americans. You know, we're the land of the free and the open. So a lockdown, just the words is nobody wants to hear that. But what we're talking about isn't a lockdown. We're talking about being safe. We're talking about, you know, the kind of distancing, the stay at home orders, the kinds of things that basically allow us to slow this virus transmission down. The virus transmission will slow us down whether we want to or not. When our hospitals start to collapse, as we just discussed, as we are finding communities where you better not have a heart attack, you better not have a stroke, you better not need emergency surgery, you better not have an automobile accident, you better not have a fall. I can go through the laundry list because these systems will be that stressed. And it's not the fault of the system. We're asking them to do the impossible. And, you know, the number of individuals who are going to get sick and die between now and the time of a vaccine could be incredible. Think about this. If you take our best guesstimate right now, even with all the activity in the last month, we estimate that no more than 15 to 16 percent of the U.S. population has been infected with this virus. There is a lot of wood out there yet for this coronavirus forest fire to burn. And that by itself could fuel these very large numbers for a period of time that will one day seem, oh, my God. I mean, think about this perspective. Back in April, when New York was a, the hot spot and other cities in Chicago, was 32,000 cases a day. And we thought, we'll never see this again. This is horrible. Then we got down to 22,000 cases a day at Memorial Day and pandemic fatigue start to set in. We watched in Florida, Georgia, Arizona, Texas, and California what happened. And we got to 67 to 70,000 cases a day. And we thought, oh my God, this will never happen again. And then we got it back down to 32,000 cases at Labor Day. And then we really let the floodgates of pandemic fatigue, anger, and indoor air go. And, you know, we're going to look back one day and say, boy, if it was only at 70,000 cases a day, wouldn't that be something? Mike, let's talk a little bit about the, the interregnum, the period now to January 20th and the inauguration of President Biden. That's a difficult, dangerous, fraught period right now that we face. Tell us a couple of things. One is, what can the president-elect and the task force accomplish in this period? They have a voice. They have access to media. They have ideas. They have plans. What can they accomplish right now when they don't have their hands on the levers of power? And related to that, why is it so important that the communication and collaboration with the Trump administration authorities be, be opened up and begin as quickly as possible? Well, first of all, let me just say, you know, I've served roles in the last five presidential administrations, as you know, Steve. You know, I was served as a science envoy for the State Department during this administration. 
my job has just always been to call balls and strikes. The rep is a nonpartisan center. I'd, I'd help anyone. I came, as you know, after 9-11 to help out the Bush administration following the, the anthrax situation. Um, and so I'm here doing the same thing. But let me just say that I have such admiration, respect, and faith in the fidelity that this group is taking to the power of science. I see that being driven. I see that science matters. I also see messaging matters. And right now, you know, I have said this to colleagues on the transition team, what we need right now, and I say this with the utmost respect, please do not think this is disrespectful. We don't need President-elect Biden. We need Uncle Joe. We need the fireside chats right now. We need what this man is uniquely qualified to do is talk to America. Help us get through this. Help us understand what's coming and what he promises to do, which I believe he will. And I think that right now is going to be so critical. Last week in my podcast, I closed it by actually reading one of the fireside chats from Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was inspiring. It was from 1942 in the early days of the war when it was things were really dark. And yet when you read that, you came away feeling, we can do this. And I think that that's what we need right now from him, that number one. Number two, you know, he's assembled an incredible group of people around him. He and the, you know, I think it speaks to itself, the fact that the very first activity he did after declaring victory, he and President, Vice President-elect Harris had a meeting with us. You know, he really put important emphasis on this response. So I feel very confident and very good that this has the highest priority. There, as much as everything else is going on, it's not diverting his attention from this. But you're right. What can he do? It is challenging. I would say, and and we all recognize, we need to get on with being able to have contact with the government. I, for one, you know, I frequently were talking to people at the highest levels of the administration until I got on this task force. And now we're all basically shut out from talking to our colleagues in the federal government until this gets resolved. That's not helpful. Give our listeners a, uh, some idea. Once the channels are open, the task force is able to get access to what? Well, it's not just the task force, it's the entire team. I mean, one of the things that I, for example, you know, I give great credit to this administration and particularly to the, what I would call the unsung heroes of public employee scientists, the regulatory science experts at FDA, the people at NIH who have helped make Operation Warp Speed really work. This will go down as a Manhattan Project of, of some note. But a vaccine is just a vaccine. It's not a vaccination. And it's not a vaccination until it's into the arm. This last mile of now getting the vaccine into the public and then getting the public convinced to take it and that they trust, the public will trust that you are basically giving them the scientific and information, both in terms of how well it works and how safe it is. I worry that we're going to see a big disconnect between getting the vaccine out there and challenges with that because of the conditions, particularly the Pfizer vaccine, where it must be kept at minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit, et cetera. And I also worry about the message. Have you seen anywhere in the U.S. federal government any messaging right now on how to convince individuals to take this vaccine? You know, I just did a program in the black community looking at young to middle-aged black males. Over 75% said they wouldn't take this vaccine. They didn't trust it. And if we don't do that, then we're going to continue to see this pandemic rage on, even when we have a tool that works. So we need somebody to have that voice. We need to have that plan. 
And that's going to occur now, and it'll occur after President-elect Biden is there. But the more we can get done now is there. And so I, I hope his voice, I hope his voice is what's there. Well, can I just say something about Uncle Joe? And this is not a partisan statement at all. But I happen to know um, President-elect Biden as a bit of Uncle Joe because my oldest son went to school with one of the uh, President-elect Biden's granddaughters. And I will tell you this, President-elect in all the years that my son went to school with his granddaughter, and this is from kindergarten to when they graduated high school, he never once missed a grandparent's day. And that's while he was vice president of the United States too. So he is well-equipped to speak to the nation as a grandfather and as an uncle. I can promise you that. It's not a partisan statement. Thanks, Andrew. Michael, let's turn to sort of thinking about looking ahead 2021 and beyond. Let's start with what are you most worried about? What's really keeping you awake right now at night? Obviously, bringing this pandemic to some kind of uh, successful conclusion globally is, is still a real challenge. You know, I worry that vaccine availability in the high-income countries will obviously begin to occur, and hopefully people will take it. How well will we roll out vaccine in low- and middle-income countries? Because as long as this virus is moving in those countries, it still poses a threat to the rest of the world, even our country, because we won't get everybody vaccinated. We won't have everybody protected. Just like we look at with measles virus, when we have incursions of measles coming from some low-income country, there's still a challenge here. So I think we've got to complete the global pandemic response. That's number one. Number two, if you look at the world right now, there are about 23 billion chickens on the face of the earth right now. One half of all the body weight of avian species is a chicken. And it's to basically produce the protein needs that we as uh, 8 billion people need. There are about 390 million pigs on the face of the earth right now, again, to feed that 8 uh, billion people. When you look at where many of those chickens and pigs are at, they're in close proximity. We have created the ideal mixing vessel right now for the next pandemic strain of influenza. And just because we have one pandemic right now doesn't mean couldn't we have another one right behind it. Look look at uh, what we've done by creating uh, the climate-related hurricane situation in this year. You know, they, they just keep coming and coming and coming. And so I do worry, will we be prepared for the next pandemic? Which, if it were like a 1918 pandemic, it could surely be shorter than this one. But as we've already talked about, the implications for what it could do to young, healthy adults would be dramatic even more so than this one has been. So I think pandemic preparedness will not go off the table after this one gets over with, and we don't even really have time to catch our breath. We've got to look at what it's going to take to be better prepared for the next one from the standpoint of vaccines, from the standpoint of our medical care systems, basic research and development. We've got a lot of issues ahead of us. Thank you, Mike. I've been listening to your podcast series and thoroughly enjoying it. And like this interview, this conversation here, I've been so impressed by your matter-of-fact approach. You speak to people where they are at. You communicate in a way that is remarkably lucid and humble and warm and factual. And I think that when we talk about what's needed in the communications gap right now is a nonpartisan, straight talk, compassionate and gets people together around those those facts and that science uh, and gets us on a, at a different place, away from our divisions, takes the temperature down, 
gets us into a different place. So thank you for that. That means a lot coming from you. As you know, you have been one of my mentors in a way. I watch what you do and how you do it. And you've been a remarkable presence in, in the Washington, D.C. for many years. We all appreciate what you do. Well, thank you, Mike. So I want to close. We ask everyone who comes on the show, we want to close on a, on a note that's positive. And so I want to ask you, you know, we've talked about a lot of really difficult and dark topics today. We're at a very fraught moment. We know there's hope around vaccine, but we have to get through some really dark periods here. And you've, you've enumerated all of those. So what gives you the greatest hope and optimism today? Well, you know, I, I think that this experience is as difficult as it is, is finally the tipping point in understanding the critical importance of science. Remember all the discussions we had after Ebola or even H1N1 in 2009? And we were all talking about how important it would be to reorder our priorities from a science investment, from a public health reorganization. And it never really happened. And I think this time we have captured the attention of the economists, of the policymakers, of people outside the science world of how critical this investment is going to be. And I think you are in a unique position to understand the marriage of science and policy is what's critical. You can have all the best science in the world, and if it doesn't make any difference in everyday life through policy and the implications of policy, what does it do? So I'm more optimistic now than ever that that's going to happen. I think we really have that moment where you know, we can bring about a new understanding of what it means to invest in the science. What does it mean to prevent as opposed to have to respond to these crises? And so I, I'm, I'm optimistic about that. And I chair a group right now with WHO and, and uh, a number of leading experts around the world on new influenza vaccines. And I am convinced we have the ability to actually have a game-changing influenza vaccine for the future that could fundamentally uh, reposition us in our vulnerability to flu. You know, if I had to do one more thing before I end this and a gift I could give to my kids and grandkids, if I could help make that happen, I believe that would fundamentally change that risk of influenza pandemics forever. So I'm optimistic about that. I think that's where we're going to go. And, uh, you know, we just need the kind of leadership that can understand bringing people together, understanding science is going to get us a lot farther than division and not understanding the science. Thank you. I just want to note that we published about two weeks ago a terrific paper by a young epidemiologist, Madison Hayes, on this topic of a universal flu vaccine. And, and for the very reason that you put forward, which this remains a fundamentally vital issue for us for the future, and, and we can't lose sight of that. Um, Michael, thank you so much for all your leadership and, and your incredible commitment and perseverance here and stamina and all of this, your service to our country. Uh, and for thanks for taking the, the time to be with us this afternoon. Thank you, Stephen. It means a lot. Thank you. <laughs>